Welcome to Chinuch 2.0, a show about the massive changes happening to how we do Chinuch, some of which may never be the same again. show, we have the privilege of speaking with the noted Jewish historian, Dr. Henry Abramson. And we speak about the last 200 years of Chinuch. We often say the good old times, but the truth is that the old times weren't really so good. For much of the past 200 years, Chinuch was basically pretty much non-existent for most children, unless they came from a privileged family. Why is this important? Today, we live in a society where basically every Jewish child gets a chance to have a full education from preschool through high school in schools that are much better off than anything that was ever available before. It's important for us to be grateful for what we have, even if our system isn't perfect. It's a far cry from the way things used to be. Problems exist, that's for sure. But we can work through these problems. Our children are learning. They're getting a good education. They're in safe schools. They're getting taught through a very old age compared to the way things used to be. Our discussion with Dr. Abramson talks about all the challenges that people had trying to be mechanich their children, from, from pogroms to very harsh government decrees, forcing children into the army at a young age. You know, we talk about how the great Talmud HaChamim of previous generation, how they would learn with such hasmada and ha- write great svarim. But we have to realize that only a very, very small percent ever made it to a yeshiva. Mir, Valajin, Radin, Tells, these yeshivas were only a small percentage of the many, many children who hardly got any education past the age of six. The age of six, they joined their father in the business, in the, in the field, or the, whatever, the factory, or whatever it is that they were, that the, the family used to earn an income. And the, the child didn't get a chance to learn a little bit more than Chomish, maybe a few Mishnayis, and that's it. And for the rest of his life, the only chance that he got to learn was if he went to a shir. The olden times were really tough when it came to Chinuch. Today we have it good. But there is one big difference that Dr. Abramson shares with us. An issue with Chinuch today that's specific to the times that we live in. If you're a parent, and especially a Machanach, you have to listen to the end of the interview where Dr. Dr. Abramson shares this huge difference and how we have to change in order to make our Chinuch system more successful. Dr. Abramson is a noted Jewish historian and lecturer. You can find many of his lectures online. He's a dean at Turo College, and he's also the host of the Jewish History in Dafyaimi, which is a short historical nugget every day that's available on the All Daf app. Check it out. They are super interesting. Now let's go to our guest. Speaking with Dr. Henry Abramson, he serves as a dean in Lander College. He's a noted Jewish historian and has a very popular series of Dafyomi, history in Dafyomi 
video series on the All Daf app. Thank you, Dr. Abramson. Oh, it's my pleasure to speak with you. So we have some questions about the history of Jewish education, how it's played out over the last 200 years or so, and where we are. Can you talk about how education was done, chinuch, for boys and girls, Jewish boys and girls, in Eastern Europe during the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century? It's actually a, a very fascinating question, and it deals with an extremely significant period in Jewish history, not only in terms of the history of Chinuch, but in the history of how Jews relate to the larger world as a whole. Uh, maybe we can go back just a little further for the context, and then I can talk about you know, how amazingly, uh, you know, tremendously important this period was because it's mainly it's really the kind of things that that we're dealing with today had their roots in uh, Eastern Europe 200 years ago. Um, prior to, let's say, the ascension to the throne of Nicholas I, who was one of the the most anti-Semitic of uh, uh, Russian Tsars of the Romanov dynasty, uh, he came to the throne. I believe it was in 1825. Uh, Jewish education was not very formalized at all. Uh, you, and we're talking now primarily Eastern Europe, where uh, teachers would be hired typically by families, sometimes by a kahila arrangement, where an individual community would pool its resources, typically funded by some large, you know, generous individuals in the community, uh, and education would take place in a very haphazard manner. It would be more appropriate to speak about, you know, tutors than teachers. In many cases, you rarely had anything that looked like an institution of learning, particularly in the primary stages. Uh, perhaps the greatest scholar of this period is a man named Shaul Stamfer at Hebrew University, who has written quite extensively on Jewish education in this period. And I think among the things that he points out that are, are most fascinating are that uh, you had actually pretty egalitarian education, meaning that in the early years, girls tended to receive uh, pretty much on par the same education that boys did. The difference happens really when they hit about age eight, and that's when girls tend to drop out of the educational environment, and um, basically that, that's where their education stops, at least formal education with a, a quasi-professional educator. And boys would continue on a little bit longer, and only if they showed exceptional promise would they continue to any more formal education as adults. Typically, at the age of bar mitzvah, most Jewish boys would already be tracked towards uh, an occupation. They would already be, you know, in training to be, you know, uh, goldsmiths, silversmiths, uh, arendators, which are basically money lenders and, and leaseholders and things like that. But that changed pretty dramatically with the ascension of Nicholas I. I'm going to pause. I, I know you're going to be editing this, so I'm going to pause occasionally, but please interrupt me sure. if I'm not sufficiently clear or if you have any additional questions. Yeah, so uh, around what year is this Nicholas I? Nicholas, 1825 is when he comes to power. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, a lot of things changed in Eastern Europe, uh, Russia in particular, when Nicholas I came to power. He, he came to power... Uh, when his father was assassinated, and uh, he had a rather different view of how he wanted to run the country. Uh, among the many things that he felt really had to happen was the, the Jews had to be somehow absorbed in the larger Russian body politic. He believed that uh, everyone in Russia 
should adhere to three basic principles. Uh, Russian orthodoxy, that is meaning uh, Russian form of Christianity. Uh, Russian autocracy, meaning you believe that the Tsar was the God-given ruler of the country and you had to obey him absolutely. And finally, uh, something called narodnost, which means like peoplehood, that there was a distinct Russian nationality, a culture, a language, and so on, that everyone had to conform to it. The Jews obviously failed on at least two, most likely three of those scores. And so he devised a special devious plan to try and digest them into the larger population of Russia as a whole. And Chinuch was a very important part of it. But before I describe the Chinuch, I should tell you about the, the, the most horrific part. He invented something called the Cantonist system, in which he mandated that Jews would no longer be able, as they had for centuries in most countries in Europe, to pay an additional tax rather than serving in the Russian armed forces. Let us recall that when you were conscripted into the armed forces, it wasn't like in modern countries where you serve two or three years. It was a 25-year service term. And so typically, the only people who would want to go to the army are people who are like second sons who would not see to own any land, who were not interested in joining the priesthood, for example, uh, and didn't have any special talent to go into business or things like that. So it was, it was a career choice, and it was a life choice, if you're talking about 25 years. So Jews typically gladly paid an extra tax that exempted them from that military service, and other people served in their stead. This usually served both the Jewish need and the state need because they really didn't want to have these Yiddish-speaking individuals who had never held a, a weapon in their lives to actually go and fight on behalf of Mother Russia. But Nicholas I felt that the best way to assimilate Jews into Russia was if they were forced to serve in the army because the army had that kind of homogenizing power that anyone who served, especially for 25 years, was going to come out Russian in the other at the other end. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but he realized that by the time Jews reached the official age of conscription, which would be uh, at 18, they were already hard-baked as Jews. They had already, you know, developed a significant amount of Jewish education and attachment. They might be married. They might even be parents at this point. So he lowered the age of conscription to 12, and he said that 12-year-old Jews may be conscripted, serve for six years in a kind of reform uh, uh, training camp called a canton, and then they would serve their 25-year sentence. And this had an incredibly awful impact on the Jewish communities, beyond what we should talk about now. The chinuch aspect of it is, he said, listen, uh, Jewish parents, if you don't want to send your children to the army, your sons to the army, I have a great alternative. My goal here is not to get rid of the Jews. My goal is just to assimilate the Jews into the Russian people. So therefore, if you send your sons to my official crown schools uh, where they will be educated in Russian values, then no problem. You're exempt from the draft. Mm -hmm. The only thing is that these Russian crown schools were populated where, where the faculty were drawn from the Russian priesthood, where uh, conversion was part of the curriculum, uh, and also by well-meaning but somewhat naive maskilim or Jewish enlighteners from Western Europe who thought, oh, this is great. Russia is going to lead the world. Jews will be enlightened and so on. Uh, and between these two populations of faculty, 
many traditional Orthodox believing Jewish families felt, oh my gosh, what's my choice? Expose my son to the risks of a, of a, a you know, an, a six-year term in the canton followed by 25 years in the Russian army in which he's probably never going to rejoin the Jewish people or put him for a few years into the Russian crown school uh, where he will most likely be, you know, uh, highly affected by these uh, very negative and noxious ideologies. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a, a major push uh, it, under Nicholas I, and it had tremendous impact. The, the crown schools lasted right up until the end of the Russian Empire in 1917. And, for example, the notorious head of the Yevsektsia, Shimon Diemenstein, was a product of uh, some of these crown schools. Mm -hmm. So this helped uh, spread the, the, the growth of Haskalah, probably. Absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, it tended to draw its population from the poorer elements, typically less well-educated elements of the community, because, you know, many Jewish families simply didn't have a choice. If you had a, a woman who was a widow and was, you know, unprotected in her community, and uh, she was worried that her son would be taken into the army, you know, this was the only way that she could see protecting him from the Russian army. Mm -hmm. So did this have, have an effect of like destroying entire communities, uh, the, the growth of uh, Jewish communities as a result? Incredibly corrosive, incredibly. Mm -hmm. Not only on an ideological level for the students who were exposed to this kind of uh, assimilationist ideology, uh, because, you know, Jewish families knew what they were getting into and they could try to inoculate their sons as much as possible. But perhaps more significantly, the fact that Nicholas I, he didn't run a very efficient bureaucracy. He placed the uh, onus of choosing the Cantonistan on the Jewish leadership themselves. Mm -hmm. So in a typical kahila, a little shtetl, which, which had maybe, you know, 20 boys who were eligible for conscription, uh, they put the local leadership, essentially the board of the kahila, in charge of deciding who went and who stayed. Mm -hmm. And uh, quite often, as you can imagine, it was not the children of the wealthy and powerful who somehow were taken off into the army. So taken together, Nicholas I had an incredibly deleterious impact on the integrity of the Jewish community. And Chinuch was part of his goal to undermine traditional Jewish educational values. Mm -hmm. So what was going on in the rest of Europe and the other Eastern European countries during this time? Uh, excellent question. So uh, Russia tended to be the furthest behind the uh, reforms in education that were taking place as you moved westward. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, was uh, much more forward-thinking in the kind of measures that it put in place. Uh, even the German Empire, of course, the French and the British, were open to uh, allowing Jews a much broader access to Jewish education and more so uh, also perceiving the value of universal education, that every citizen should at least receive the, the benefit of literacy. I mean, when you think about uh, Eastern Europe, just to go back to Russia for a second, a census in 1917, sorry, excuse me, 1897, uh, discovered that uh, only 60% of Jews were literate in any language. Now, you think about that figure, which would be utterly shocking for most Jewish communities, and then you you imagine what it must have been like for non-Jews. Uh, the, the illiteracy was rampant. Mm -hmm. So in Western and Eastern Europe, there are many more formalized opportunities for Jews uh, to receive a traditional Jewish education that occurred much earlier. 
At the same time, the populations there, uh, particularly in Germany, uh, that was really the center of the Haskalah, the center of the Jewish Enlightenment. And many of these Jewish institutions were not necessarily conforming to what would be uh, traditional Orthodox standards of Chinuch. So during this time, during the, the, 18th, the 19th century, early 20th century, we, we know, as, as history tells us, that there was a growth of yeshivas all over, Slavatka, um, Volazhe, and uh, Mir, uh, Baranovich, Kamenet. So these boys obviously had some, some form of education that they were motivated enough to continue to go on to a yeshiva. Where was that? Where, where, where did they get that education, and what kind of education was it? That, that's an amazing and very useful question. I think the answer is quite inspirational, too. Uh, we should recall that, you know, we're only seeing Eastern European history largely through kind of like a pinhole telescope. We see those great institutions like Volozhin and, and uh, you know, Radin. Radin was much, much quite a bit smaller and so on. But, you know, we see those great institutions and we think of them as being like the, the central pillar of Eastern European Jewish society. In reality, it was a lot like if you looked at American Jewry today and you see, you know, Base uh, Medrash Kavoha or you see, you know, things like that, and you say, wow, American Jewry, look how strong it is. But Orthodox Jewry only represents somewhere around 10% of the American Jewish population. Right. The big story is that Jews are, God forbid, falling off the cliff educationally, that uh, in ignorance of Jewish texts and Jewish tradition is at a crisis level, like we're talking about DEFCON 4 when it comes to what Jews know about Judaism. It's true that we have at the same time an incredible, you know, uh, explosion of Jewish interest and Jewish literacy and Jewish publishing and things like that, but it's only really expressed in a small segment of the population. And by and large, you could say the same kind of phenomenon was happening in Eastern Europe as well. That, you know, like, to give you an example of it, if you've ever encountered Shalom Aleichem, um, and if you ever read him in Yiddish in particular, mm-hmm. you see that, you know, the character of Tevya, Der Milchaker, Tevya, the, uh, the dairyman, um, he's really funny because he is like sort of a country bumpkin, a well-meaning sort of individual who's generous and kind. He has his failures and so on. But he imagines himself to be, you know, somewhat of a Tamar Chacham. And the thing is, he's constantly mangling all of these uh, quotations from Pirkei Avos and from Midrash and from Gemara. He, he really is, you know, an Amha Aretz who wants to appear wise. Uh, Shalom Aleichem's readers, even though they may have been largely secular, they would read these things in Yiddish and they would understand how Tevya had misspoken, uh, how he mm-hmm. misquoted Pirkei Avos. But if you read that, in, read these texts in English, with 21st century Jewish American readers, they don't get it that Tevya is quoting the Gemara incorrectly. And so they think that, what is this with Judaism? It's so bizarre and weird, it doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. because the sources, uh, they don't know how to read the sources properly. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a complicated metaphor, but the idea is that we really are seeing in the last 200 years, incredible Yeridas Adoros, decline of the generations in which the later generations don't even know that they don't know something. Mm-hmm. At least at the turn of the 20th century, most secular Jews did know what a real Talmud Chacham looked like. Right. So you're saying that, that the, the, the difference between the ones who were going to these, these yeshivas to learn 
and the, the general population, there was a huge divide between them in the terms of, of their level of knowledge, even before they actually went to yeshiva. Yes, absolutely. At least the Jews, you know, in their shtetl could appreciate that there was such a thing as a Tamar Chacham. They could, you know, open up a Gemara and they could find Rashi. But to make a laning on, you know, a significant amount would be much more difficult for them. At the same time, you know, here I'm kind of speaking out of both sides of my mouth at once because I'm thinking of so many stories of the the high level of literacy by American standards. You know, we, we have to understand, are we looking at it from a 21st century perspective? In which case we would say, my gosh, these people are absolutely brilliant and well-educated. But at the same time, within the context of that society, most Jews simply were not. The example that I think of that I think brings us to mind is in um, Jonathan Rosenblum, Rabbi Rosenblum wrote a really beautiful uh, biography of uh, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. And Rabbi Yaakov, who grew up in Eastern Europe in a, in a place, I believe it was called Dolinau, um, where he remembers as a young child that he would go to shul with his father late Friday nights, like 2 a.m. Friday nights, because there were ordinary workers, ordinary Jewish workers who were like wagon drivers and things like that, who did not have an opportunity to learn during the week at all. So the only time they could learn was all night Friday night. And so on the one hand, this story, which, by the way, is reinforced by his very strong memory of the special kichel that they used to serve on Friday nights in the shul. As a young boy, he remembered the kichel very well, is that you could have, on the one hand, you know, workers who, who do not have the opportunity to learn at all during the week, and at the same time, tremendous dedication, that they'll sit around with the Rebbe and listen to Ein Yaakov all night, because that's that's what they're able to do. The value of chinuch is so much mm -hmm. higher in Eastern Europe but the, the attainments uh, were not broadly distributed the way we tend to think of it when we look at the yeshiva world and their phenomenal achievements. Okay. Maybe I can add one more point to this. Sure. Let us recall that most of these yeshivas had very little institutional support. I mean, if you look at the pictures of the Voloshin Yeshiva, it looks like kind of a smallish barn. Uh, it wasn't until Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin, which I believe was in the, the mid, uh, the interwar period perhaps, that you actually had a cafeteria built into a yeshiva. Mm -hmm. The boys were all on Essentog where they right. would come and they'd have to like scrounge a meal here and there. Very undignified, no dormitories. You know, it took a tremendous amount of, of fortitude on the behalf of these young students to say, I'm going to devote myself to learning, and I'm going to yeshiva, and I'm going to spend, you know, how many years studying there? Right. Really different world. Okay. So talk a little bit about how, how, who, paid, who paid for the, the cost of chinuch over the years. Like, was it, a, was it a, a burden on the parents? Was it a community thing? And yeah. up to what age did, they, did they, the parents foot the bill? No, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And again, if we're focusing primarily in Ashkenazi Eastern Europe, we have a very different situation pertaining in Sephardic lands, Constantinople, in the Maghreb, for example, um, because Sephardim developed early on a rather different approach to Chinuch than the Ashkenazic world. Sephardim, uh, I think very admirably, regarded Chinuch as a communal responsibility. And so the underwriting of school expenses fell upon the kahila as a whole, and uh, it, it tended to, um, you know, make access to education much broader than in Eastern Europe. And also fascinating, 
um, the Jewish Action published a great article on this a while ago. It had an impact on the curriculum as well, because if you are an individual Ashkenazic parent and you've got a little yingala and you want to make sure that he stands out, so you want to rush him to Gemara as soon as possible so you can show him off to your friends, get him a good shidduch and so on, you want to have him really immersed in Gemara. The Sephardim, who did not necessarily have that same pressure because it was communal institution, you weren't paying for the education personally, uh, they had a much broader com- curriculum that had, for example, much more emphasis on mastering Tanakh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Gemara, obviously incredibly important, the Rif, the Shulchan Aruch, and so on, but there was still a lot larger space for learning Tanakh for boys uh, later on in life. But in Eastern Europe, it was a much more of a personal thing that was undertaken by parents. Typically, at the very young age, when you had much more universal education, uh, parents would group together and they would hire a malamid who would typically teach in one of the homes of the, uh, the, the families that uh, hired him. But this would really only get to very, very basic level of literacy in, uh, in Chumash and in Davening and then would end for most of them. And uh, being a Malamed, you know, it, it, it's, it's a title of, of significance in the modern era. But in the, uh, the 19th century, you know, maybe this is something that we can reflect on as well in terms of our own circumstances. You know, we, our children are our most precious resource, and yet we tend to entrust them and their, their sensitive years of early development to people who are not very well paid. So either we have to like bite the bullet and really pay a lot more money so that we can hire really highly qualified, motivated people, motivated people to teach, um, or we will probably get more and more teachers who simply are not able to do other things and unfortunately meet the, uh, the old adage of those who can't do teach. I, I do want to say with tremendous respect for the phenomenal teachers that, that I've known in my lifetime, not only as a student, but also as a parent of students, that some of the most amazing teachers are there because they believe in the mission. They believe in the value of Chinuch. And they could be brain surgeons and rocket scientists and so on, but they really believe in what they're doing. Those are the best. There's no question. And, and they deserve 10 times their salary. Um, but the reality is they only get what the community can bear. So that's one of the main differences, I think, between Sephardic uh, Europe and Eastern Europe, Ashkenazic Europe, in terms of the funding of schools. That changes uh, to some degree when you get to the 20th century. And uh, some of these countries, like Poland, for example, Lithuania, briefly, actually get some more state funding to try to underwrite the costs. But it's still largely a parent-driven venture. Mm-hmm. And that ended at what age? Usually at about six, seven? Yeah, again, we're speaking about a couple hundred years, so there's significant mm-hmm. variations. But it was mainly tracked to vocation. Mm-hmm. You know, young and, boys and, in particular, once they are capable of learning and earning in particular, they tended to drop off the track unless they were incredibly motivated or incredibly brilliant or their father was wealthy enough to keep them on. Mm-hmm. It was definitely not the norm. And any learning that they would do subsequently would be all on their own? would be on the child's own initiative? Uh, For the most part, yeah. They might have a small uh, amount of support from home. Um, We see, for example, the memoirs of Gluckel of Hameln, who uh, wrote at the end of the 1600s and into the 1700s about, and and she was a fairly wealthy widow at the time, 
and uh, you know she was having a lot of difficulty getting her her sons educated. She would send them off with, uh, for example, a certain amount of money and uh, clothing. But the, when the child would come home for yontif, she would see that the silver buttons that were on his jacket were torn off, and they were seized by his malamed, who wanted a little extra payment. So it was definitely. <laughs> You know, these are these are difficult times, and 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 not institutionalized at all, like we have today. Very much a, a private concern, and um, you know, individual rabbis would set up kind of disciple circles where you would go, and there might be six or, or a dozen students who would collect around a particular rabbi. But you know, the concept of azman, the concept of grades, to be sure, were entirely foreign to this way of learning. Right. And was any secular education being given at all during during this period? Oh, that, that's a great question. Um, and of course, it varies from region to region and epoch to epoch. The uh, Western European uh, institutions tended to offer a much larger amount of secular education, especially when you look at uh, you know schools that were organized under the aegis of Rabbi Shamshin or Foyle Hirsch, um, the idea that it was there was actually positive value in being able to uh, negotiate outside culture and understand the, the parameters of those things. But uh, outside of, um, of Western Europe and Eastern Europe, it tended to be far more uh, exclusively relegated to religious instruction, uh, sometimes a tiny amount of rudimentary math, but uh, largely those subjects were ignored. Uh, this There was a huge gender differential, though, for girls who did go on and get higher education, uh, they tended to get a much more significant secular education. And especially when you get to the period when the Russian Empire has fallen and we have independent Poland, for example, that um, uh, Jewish girls would typically go to non-Jewish school and be completely immersed in, in Polish Catholic culture. And that was just considered you know, perfectly normal. This is uh, the genesis of Sarah Schneer's approach to education was really, you know, the impetus for it was the fact that you had this uh, scissors crisis where all these boys from certain families who were getting higher education Jewishly, but nothing in a secular realm, and a lot of girls who were getting, you know, educated in French and in music, and they could quote Schopenhauer, but they had very little idea what was going on textually mm-hmm. and uh, what kind of shidduch would that be. So that's one of the main reasons she set up the, uh, the Beis Yaakov's movement was to give Jews, Jewish girls a much higher quality education in traditional Judaism. Mm-hmm. So, so getting back to the secular education, it was, it was a very, very uh, unique thing that only certain families would be able to give their, their children that? Well, particularly in Eastern Europe. In Western Europe, much more common. Mm-hmm. In Eastern Europe, of course, the even uh, language skills, right? The Russian insistence, the government insistence that Volozhin include Russian grammar in its curriculum was sufficient to shut the school down. Mm-hmm. That they, uh, they refused to uh, allow the government to have any incursions in the curriculum, which is kind of like a, you know, when you get into the nuts and bolts of that individual uh, episode. It is uh, rather confusing because, you know, it, there had been no strong opposition to it before. It was more, as I understand it, and, and Professor Stamfer has written a whole book on this, uh, it was more the, the principle of the Russian government being able to dictate mm-hmm. the curriculum that was considered so dangerous 
to the leaders of the yeshiva. Okay, so so get us to today. Today, our schools look entirely different than they ever have been, probably. And uh, it, you know, it's it, we, we all have uh, very flourishing yeshivas. Virtually every family sends their ch- children to yeshivas and girls' schools, and uh, they look very different. They go obviously to a much older age, and they're it's a much more formalized education. So, how did that come about? Uh, there's no question that there's a societal impetus, right? That that. You know, the idea of dropping out of school at 14 is just unheard of. And in fact, I believe it's illegal. I don't think you can even drop out till you're 16. Even in my father, Oliver Shalom, and his generation, you know, kids who dropped out at 16 in order to get a good job in the paper mill, um, that was kind of like the lowest that you would go. Uh, and my father was considered a success for uh, for graduating high school. Um, so, the, you know, the the... The impetus for more and more education, which is felt throughout American society, is especially felt among Jews because we have always valued education. I would also argue that even more important than the kind of the, the, the tide rising that lifts all boats, there's the economic reality that without a doubt, higher education is overwhelmingly correlated with higher income. And multiple studies have confirmed that ever since World War II, the, the more educated you are, even if you don't use your degree, the more likely you are to earn a higher salary. So that is one of the most profound motivators for anyone to do anything, and especially for Jews who tend to be much more pragmatic as a culture uh, to to invest greater energies in Chinuch. The... Um, I think when you add those things and you add the the general higher standard of living, you know, we're not talking about an environment in which, you know, uh, you know, people would have to quit school early because they needed more hands on the farm uh, where we live in urban environments. Jews generally favor urban environments where we tend to engage in white collar occupations as opposed to blue collar occupations. There, there's only advantage in keeping your kids in school longer. Um, the legal aspect of it is significant. The uh, social pressures of, you know, uh, children who drop out early have a harder time, I would imagine, finding an appropriate shidduch and things like that. So there's a, a multiplicity of factors that I think push us towards a much longer period of time in school. Uh, I, I would not be surprised if we were to play kind of like a historical game and uh, give Eastern European Jews, let's say in the year 1800, the same opportunities that American Jews would have, they would probably stay in school a lot longer too. I mean, school is fun, right? We enjoy learning intrinsically. (laughs) I myself have never left school since I'm six years old. (laughs) (laughs) Every September, I love going back to school, right? So I, I I would think that's probably an approach to your question. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so what, well, just one closing question. Do you feel, as a result of all this increased schooling that we're having, as this, as a, in our, as a society, has that increased the level of scholarship of the average Jew, or or man or woman, that 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 when when they go into adulthood and they start raising their family, they're going to be more knowledgeable and more connected, maybe religiously, than than people of previous generations. So we live in very difficult times. Uh, uh, with regard to that question in particular. We live in an era influenced by the internet when we have access to more information than at any other point in human history. It has changed us in many profound ways, uh, not the least of which is the fact that 
my iPhone knows Shas better than I do for sure. <laughs> I can look up anything my, right now. It used to be 100 years ago that you would call someone a Talmud Chacham just for knowing facts. That is no longer the case when anyone with access to the internet can fact check absolutely anything. So the currency of knowledge has changed. It is no longer information. It's all about wisdom. It's no longer about how much you know. It's about how you are able to filter and edit the information that's available to transform that information into something tangible. This gap between knowledge and wisdom is greater than it ever has been before. So in other words, even though there's an incredible number of Jewish publications out there, uh, print publications, let alone internet publications, the number of people who are able to like sift through them and say, this one is valuable, this other one is not, or this one is valuable only for these kinds of things, this one is, avail is valuable only for those kinds of things, we have a, a crisis in that area. In other words, knowledge is rampant, wisdom is dear. It's very hard to find true wisdom today, maybe because we have so much information. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very good. Excellent. <laughs> very well said. Thought about <laughs> I, it I like that answer. <laughs> yeah, it's, okay. I think it's MS. Very but good. there's a lot of challenges, to be sure. Absolutely, yes. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Abramson. This, was, this has been great. No, my really, pleasure. Uh, puts our, we should really, it, it teaches us a, a very important lesson how we, we have to be very appreciative of what we have now. We, we're we're in, in, a, in a society, we're in a generation where we're, we have a wealth of educational opportunities that we, we virtually never had in the history of our people. Absolutely. That's yeah. quite correct. You've been listening to Chinuch 2.0, a show exploring the changes happening to how we do Chinuch. Chinuch 2.0 is hosted and produced by me, Aaron Parks. Special thanks to Dovin Lichtenstein of Headlines, who inspires the show. You can subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts or on our website, chinuchshow.com. For suggestions, comments, or guests' ideas, please visit chinuchshow.com. Thanks for listening.